Section 7 of the Critique of Practical Reason by Immanuel Kant. Translated by Thomas Kingsmill Abbott. First Part. Elements of Pure Practical Reason. Book 1. The Analytic of Pure Practical Reason. Chapter 2. Of the Concept of an Object of Pure Practical Reason. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. By a concept of the practical reason I understand the idea of an object as an effect possible to be produced through freedom. To be an object of practical knowledge, such as, signifies, therefore, only the relation of the will to the action by which the object or its opposite would be realized, and to decide whether something is an object of pure practical reason or not, is only to discern the possibility or impossibility of willing the action by which, if we had the required power, about which experience must decide, a certain object would be realized. If the object to be taken as the determining principle of our desire, it must first be known whether it is physically possible, by the free use of our powers, before we decide whether it is an object of practical reason or not. On the other hand, if the law can be considered a priori as the determining principle of the action, and the latter, therefore, as determined by pure practical reason, the judgment whether a thing is an object of pure practical reason or not does not depend at all on the comparison with our physical power, and the question is only whether we should will an action that is directed to the existence of an object, if the object were in our power. Hence the previous question is only as the moral possibility of the action, for in this case it is not the object, but the law of the will, that is the determining principle of the action. The only objects of practical reason are therefore those of good and evil. For, by the former is meant an object necessarily desired according to a principle of reason, by the latter one necessarily shunned, also according to a principle of reason. If the notion of good is not to be derived from an antecedent practical law, but on the contrary is to serve as its foundation, it can only be the notion of something whose existence promises pleasure, and thus determines the causality of the subject to produce it, that is to say, determines the faculty of desire. Now, since it is possible to discern a priori what idea will be accompanied with pleasure and what with pain, it will depend on experience alone to find out what is primarily good or evil. The property of the subject, with reference to which alone this experiment can be made, is the feeling of pleasure and pain, a receptivity belonging to the internal sense, thus that only would be primarily good, with which the sensation of pleasure is immediately connected, and that simply evil which immediately excites pain. Since, however, this is opposed even to the usage of language, which distinguishes the pleasant from the good, the unpleasant from the evil, and requires that good and evil shall always be judged by reason, and therefore by concepts which can be communicated to every one, and not by mere sensation, which is limited to individual subjects and their susceptibility, and since nevertheless pleasure or pain cannot be connected with any idea of an object a priori, the philosopher who thought himself obliged to make a feeling of pleasure the foundation of his practical judgments would call that good which is a means to the pleasant, and evil which is a cause of unpleasantness and pain, for the judgment on the relation of means to ends certainly belongs to reason. But although reason is alone capable of discerning the connection of means with their ends, so that the will might even be defined as the faculty of ends, 
since these are always determining principles of the desires. Yet the practical maxims which would follow from the aforesaid principle of the good, being merely a means, would never contain as the object of the will anything good in itself, but only something good for something. The good would always be merely the useful, and that for which it is useful must always lie outside the will in sensation. Now, if this as a pleasant sensation were to be distinguished from the notion of good, then there would be nothing primarily good at all, but the good would have to be sought only in the means to something else, namely, some pleasantness. It is an old formula of the schools. Nihil appetimus nisi sub ration boni, nihil aversamur nisi sub ration mali, and it is often used correctly, but often also in a manner injurious to philosophy, because the expressions boni and mali are ambiguous, owing to the poverty of language, in consequence of which they admit a double sense, and therefore inevitably bring the practical laws into ambiguity, and philosophy, which in employing them becomes aware of the different meanings in the same word, but can find no special expressions for them, is driven to subtle distinctions about which there is subsequently no unanimity, because the distinction could not be directly marked by any suitable expression. The German language has the good fortune to possess expressions which do not allow this difference to be overlooked. It possesses two very distinct concepts, and especially distinct expressions, for that which the Latins express by a single word, bonum. For bonum it has das gut, good, and das wohl, well, wheel, for malum, das bos, evil, and das übel, ill, bad, or das wel, woe. So that we express two quite distinct judgments when we consider in an action the good and evil of it, or our wheel and woe, ill. Hence it already follows that the above-quoted psychological proposition is at least very doubtful if it is translated. We desire nothing except with a view to our weal or woe. On the other hand, if we render it thus, under the direction of reason we desire nothing except so far as we esteem it good or evil, it is indubitably certain and at the same time quite clearly expressed. Well or ill always implies only a reference to our condition, as pleasant or unpleasant, as one of pleasure or pain, and if we desire or avoid an object on this account, it is only so far as it is reference to our sensibility, and to the feeling of pleasure or pain that it produces. But good or evil always implies a reference to the will, as determined by the law of reason, to make something its object, for it is never determined directly by the object and the idea of it, but is a faculty of taking a rule of reason or motive of an action, by which an object may be realized. Good and evil, therefore, are properly referred to actions, not to the sensations of the person, and if anything is to be good or evil absolutely, i.e., in every respect and without further condition, or is to be so esteemed, it can only be the manner of acting, the maxim of the will, and consequently the acting person himself, as a good or evil man, that can be so called, and not a thing. However, then, men may laugh at the Stoic, who in the severest paroxysms of gout cried out, Pain, however thou tormentest me, I will never admit that thou art an evil. Kakov, malam. He was right. A bad thing it certainly was, and his cry betrayed that, but that any evil attached to him thereby, this he had no reason whatever to admit. For pain did not in the least diminish the worth of his person, but only that of his condition. If he had been conscious of a single lie, it would have lowered his pride, but pain served only to raise it, 
when he was conscious that he had not deserved it by any unrighteous action, by which he had rendered himself worthy of punishment. What we call good must be an object of desire in the judgment of every rational man, and evil an object of aversion in the eyes of every one. Therefore, in addition to sense, this judgment requires action. So it is with truthfulness, as opposed to lying, so with justice, as opposed to violence, etc. But we may call a thing a bad or ill thing, which yet every one must at the same time acknowledge to be good, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. The man who submits to a surgical operation feels it no doubt as a bad thing, but by their reason he and every one acknowledge it to be good. If a man who delights in annoying and vexing peaceable people at last receives a right good beating, this is no doubt a bad thing, but every one approves it and regards it as a good thing, even though nothing else resulted from it. Nay, even the man who receives it must, in his reason, acknowledge that he has met justice, because he sees the proportion between good conduct and good fortune, which reason inevitably places before him, here put into practice. No doubt our weal and woe are of very great importance in the estimation of our practical reason, and as far as our nature, as sensible beings, is concerned, our happiness is the only thing of consequence, provided it is estimated as reason especially requires, not by the transitory sensation, but by the influence that this has on our whole existence, and on our satisfaction therewith. But it is not absolutely the only thing of consequence. Man is a being who, as belonging to the world of sense, has wants, and so far as his reason has an office which it cannot refuse, namely, to attend to the interest of his sensible nature, and to form practical maxims, even with a view to the happiness of this life, and if possible even to that of a future." But he is not so completely an animal as to be indifferent to what reason says on its own account, and to use it merely as an instrument for the satisfaction of his wants as a sensible being. For the possession of reason would not only raise his worth above that of the brutes, if it is to serve him only for the same purpose that instinct serves in them, it would in that case be only a particular method which nature had employed to equip men for the same ends for which it has qualified brutes, without qualifying him for any higher purpose. No doubt, once this arrangement of nature has been made for him, he requires reason in order to take into consideration his weal and woe. But besides this, he possesses it for a higher purpose also, namely, not only to take into consideration what is good or evil in itself, about which only pure reason, uninfluenced by any sensible interest, can judge, but also to distinguish this estimate thoroughly from the former, and to make it the supreme condition thereof. In estimating what is good or evil in itself, as distinguished from that which can be so called only relatively, the following points are to be considered. Either a rational principle is already conceived, as of itself the determining principle of the will, without regard to possible objects of desire, and therefore by the more legislative form of the maxim, and in that case that principle is a practical a priori law, and pure reason is supposed to be practical of itself. The law, in that case, determines the will directly. The action conformed to it is good in itself. A will whose maxim always conforms to this law is good absolutely in every respect, and is the supreme condition of all good. Or the maxim of the will is consequent on a determining principle of desire, which presupposes an object of pleasure or pain, something, therefore, that pleases or displeases, and the maxim of reason that we should pursue the former and avoid the latter, determines our actions as good relatively to our inclination, 
that is, good indirectly, i.e., relatively to a different end to which they are means, and in that case these maxims can never be called laws, but may be called rational practical precepts. The end itself, the pleasure that we seek, is in the latter case not a good but a welfare, not a concept of reason, but an empirical concept of an object of sensation, but the use of the means thereto, that is, the action, is nevertheless called good, because rational deliberation is required for it, not, however, good absolutely, but only relatively to our sensuous nature, with regard to its feelings of pleasure and displeasure, but the will whose maxim is affected thereby is not a pure will, that is directed only to that in which pure reason by itself can be practical. This is the proper place to explain the paradox of method in a critique of practical reason, namely, that the concept of good and evil must not be determined before the moral law, of which it seems as if it must be the foundation, but only after it and by means of it. In fact, even if we did not know that the principle of morality is a pure a priori law determining the will, yet that we may not assume principles quite gratuitously, we must, at least at first, leave it undecided, whether the will has merely empirical principles of determination, or whether it has not also pure a priori principles. For it is contrary to all rules of philosophical method to assume as decided that which is the very point in question. Supposing that we wish to begin with the concept of good, in order to deduce from it the laws of the will, then this concept of an object as good would at the same time assign to us this object as the sole determining principle of the will. Now, since this concept had not any practical a priori law for its standard, the criterion of good or evil could not be placed in anything but the agreement of the object with our feeling of pleasure or pain, and the use of reason could only consist in determining, in the first place, this pleasure or pain in connection with all the sensations of my existence, and in the second place, the means of securing to myself the object of pleasure. Now, as experience alone can decide what conforms to the feeling of pleasure, and by hypothesis the practical law is to be based on this as a condition, it follows that the possibility of a priori practical laws would be at once excluded, because it was imagined to be necessary, first of all, to find an object, the concept of which, as a good, should constitute the universal though empirical principle of determination of the will. By what it was necessary to inquire, first of all, was whether there was not an a priori determining principle of the will, and this could never be found anywhere but in a pure practical law, in so far as this law prescribes to maxims merely their form without regard to an object. Since, however, we laid the foundation of all practical law in an object determined by our conceptions of good and evil, whereas without a previous law that object could not be conceived by empirical concepts, we have deprived ourselves beforehand of the possibility of even conceiving a pure practical law. On the other hand, if we had first investigated the latter analytically, we should have found that it is not the concept of good as an object that determines the moral law and makes it possible, so far as it deserves the name of good absolutely. This remark, which only concerns the method of ultimate ethical inquiries, is of importance. It explains at once the occasion of all the mistakes of philosophers with respect to the supreme principle of morals. For they sought for an object of the will which they could make the matter and principle of a law, which, consequently, could not determine the will directly, but by means of that object referred to the feeling of pleasure or pain, whereas they first ought to have searched for a law that would determine the will a priori and directly, 
and afterwards determine the object in accordance with the will. Now, whether they place this object of pleasure, which was to supply the supreme conception of goodness in happiness, in perfection, in moral feeling, or in the will of God, their principle in every case implied heteronomy, and they must inevitably come upon empirical conditions of a moral law, since their object, which was to be the immediate principle of the will, could not be called good or bad except in its immediate relation to feeling, which is always empirical. It is only a formal law, that is, one which prescribes to reason nothing more than the form of its universal legislation as the supreme condition of its maxims, that can be a priori a determining principle of practical reason. The ancients avowed this error without concealment by directing all their moral inquiries to the determination of the notion of the summum bonum, which they intended afterwards to make the determining principle of the will in the moral law, whereas it is only far later, when the moral law has been first established for itself, and shown to be the direct determining principle of the will, that this object can be presented to the will, whose form is now determined a priori, and this we shall undertake in the dialectic of the pure practical reason. The moderns, with whom the question of the summum bonum has gone out of fashion, or at least seems to have become a secondary matter, hide the same error under vague expressions as in many other cases. It shows itself nevertheless in their systems, as it always produces heteronomy of practical reason, and from this can never be derived a moral law giving universal commands. Now, since the notions of good and evil, as consequences of the a priori determination of the will, imply also a pure practical principle, and therefore a causality of pure reason, hence they do not originally refer to objects, so as to be, for instance, special modes of the synthetic unity of the manifold of given intuitions in one consciousness, like the pure concepts of the understanding or categories of reason in its theoretic employment. On the contrary, they presuppose that objects are given, but they are all modes, modi, of a single category, namely, that of causality, the determining principle of which consists in the rational conception of a law, which, as a law of freedom, reason gives to itself, thereby a priori proving itself practical. However, as the actions on the one side come under a law which is not a physical law, but a law of freedom, and consequently belong to the conduct of beings in the world of intelligence, yet on the other side, as events in the world of sense, they belong to phenomena, hence the determinations of a practical reason are only possible in reference to the latter, and therefore in accordance with the categories of the understanding, not indeed with a view to any theoretic employment of it, i.e., so as to bring the manifold of sensible intuition under one consciousness a priori, but only to subject the manifold of desires to the unity of consciousness of a practical reason, giving it commands in the moral law, i.e., to a pure will a priori. These categories of freedom, for so we choose to call them in contrast to those theoretic categories which are categories of physical nature, have an obvious advantage over the latter, inasmuch as the latter are only forms of thought which designate objects in an indefinite manner by means of universal concept of every possible intuition, the former, on the contrary, refer to the determination of a free elective will, to which, indeed, no exactly corresponding intuition can be assigned, but which has, as its foundation, a pure, practical, a priori law, which is not the case with any concepts belonging to the theoretic use of our cognitive faculties. Hence, instead of the form of intuitions, space and time, which does not lie in reason itself, but has to be drawn from another source, namely, the sensibility, 
These being elementary, practical concepts, have as their foundation the form of a pure will, which is given in reason, and therefore in the thinking faculty itself. From this it happens that, as all precepts of pure practical reason have to do only with the determination of the will, not with the physical conditions of practical ability, of the execution of one's purpose, the practical a priori principles, in relation to the supreme principle of freedom, are at once cognitions, and have not to wait for intuitions in order to acquire significance, and that for this remarkable reason, because they themselves produce the reality of that to which they refer, the intention of the will, which is not the case with theoretical concepts. Only we must be careful to observe that these categories only apply to the practical reason, and thus they proceed in order from those which are as yet subject to sensible conditions, and morally indeterminate, to those which are free from sensible conditions, and determined merely by the moral law. End of section 7